This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus going from the upper room where he had the Passover meal with his apostles and where he declared that that Passover had foreshadowed his redemptive work of him going to the cross. And then he instituted a perpetual reminder of this for all time in the Lord's Supper. He also told them at that time that one of them would betray him. And then on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he told the eleven, because at this point Judas had gone to betray him to the chief priests and to the, uh, to the elders, that that night they would all be offended by him and that they would all abandon him, which they all vehemently denied. And Peter so much so uh, that he said to Jesus that he would, he, would, he would never deny him. And Jesus said to him, not only will you, you, you leave me and forsake me, you will deny me three times this very night. Well, Jesus went into the garden and he told eight of his apostles to wait and watch while he took Peter, James, and John uh, with him as he went to pray. And then he told them to stay and watch as he prayed. And he prayed three times to his father, asking him if it were possible to let this cup pass from him. And the cup, we said, was the cup of God's judgment uh, and and wrath, that, that he would have to drink the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And so was there another way? He's asking, he's praying, and he's weeping out to redeem sinners without having to drink it, without having to go to the cross. And the Father's answer was no. It's not possible. There's no other way. The redemption of sinners had to go through the cross. And after a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, Jesus was strengthened and fortified in his inner man and now ready to embrace his cross. So he wakes up his sleeping apostles and he says, let's go, my betrayer is at hand. And in verses 47 to 50, we looked at how Judas... And a multitude of many of hundreds come with clubs and swords and and torches and lanterns to arrest Jesus. Uh, And how when Jesus had asked them uh, who they were looking for, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, they were driven backwards and to the ground when he said, I am he. Which was actually saying, I am. There is no he in the Greek there. I am, meaning I am the eternal God. I am the self-existent one. And for a brief moment... They're given a glimpse. The multitude is given a glimpse of his deity and majesty. And it drives them back. Then Judas, his betrayer, we're told, gives the multitude a sign to identify Jesus. And he says, the one who I kiss, remember it's a warm, affectionate kiss, he is Jesus. And he comes up to Jesus and he greets him and he kisses him, which of course doesn't fool Jesus for a moment. But all the while, Jesus calmly and with love tries to expose Judas his sin to Judas. Judas' sin to himself. And then we read in verse 50 that the multitude laid hands on Jesus and took him. Well, in verses 51 to 56, which I just read, Jesus goes from his encounter with Judas to now an encounter with Peter and an encounter with the multitude. And I'd like to look at those two encounters with Peter and the multitude. A very simple two-point outline, actually. Jesus' encounter with Peter. Jesus' encounter with the multitude. And I want to read verses 51 to 54 again, his encounter with, the, with Peter. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword 
struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Well, the multitudes grabbed Jesus, and all of a sudden, things start to go haywire. We read that one of his apostles pulls out the sword. Remember we said the sword was not this long thing, but it's a small sword, like a dagger. And he strikes the servant of the high priest with it, and he cuts off his ear. And Luke fills us in on some of the details here on Luke 29, 22, 49, and 50. He says there, when, they, when, they, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So the they, in this case, are the apostles, plural. And they ask him if they should fight against the multitudes. And remember, we said there's about a thousand people there from the cohort of Roman soldiers. That's about 600, plus all the temple police and everyone else from the temple. Quite a few people. And so, should we do this? Should we fight these guys? But before Jesus can even answer, one of them pulls out a sword and off comes the high priest's servant's ear. And John tells us who this impulsive apostle is. And then he tells us who the high priest's servant is in John 18.10. And there we read, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So no surprise here, right? The impulsive apostle is Peter. The name of the servant is Malchus. Now two questions I think we need to ask is, why does Peter have a sword? And, and secondly, then why does he use it? Why does he have it? Why does he use it? Uh, and by the way, I don't believe that Peter was aiming to cut off his ear. I think he was going for his head. I think he's just a, I think he's just a, he's, he's a fisherman, not a swordsman. And he misses. Right? Well, the reason he has a sword, and another apostle has a sword we know, is because they misunderstood what Jesus said to them just hours before. He said to them in Luke twenty-two thirty-six that night, he said, but now... He who has a money bag, let him take it. And he, and likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And the apostle said to him, in verse 38, Look, Lord, here are two swords. So once again, they take him literally when he is speaking figuratively. He wasn't telling them that all of a sudden they should arm themselves and let's do battle. wasn't doing that. Right? What he was saying was that from now on, Things won't be so easy for you guys. You should expect more and more persecution because your allegiance to me and, and because of, of your preaching my gospel is going to heat things up. People in general won't be so hospitable to you because you will be representing me. Therefore, arm yourselves spiritually. Arm yourselves spiritually. But the apostles misunderstood. And, and, and so they take with them two swords. And obviously Peter is carrying one of those swords. Well, before Jesus can answer the apostles' question in the garden, Peter jumps the gun, pulls out the sword, and whoosh, slices off Malchus's ear. Right? And, and this turns from a peaceable arrest to chaos. It's kind of like you get pulled over by a policeman. You've got a bunch of people in the car. And the policeman just going to give you a warning. Just going to give you a warning. But someone in the car says something like smart aleck remark and you're going home with three tickets. Right? Someone says something and now it boils over and it's a bad situation. Right? 
Well, there are a few reasons, I think, why Peter actually pulls the sword. For one, he just swore up and down, just hours before, he swore to Jesus he would never be offended by him. He would never forsake him. In fact, he said, even if all are made to stumble, all of these other apostles, I'm better than them all, right? Full of pride, even if they all do that, I will never, ever be made to stumble. And the cherry on top here is he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So Peter's got to make good on these lofty promises. He also uses the sword because he does not understand that Jesus is a suffering Messiah. He does not understand that. They don't understand that yet. Right? That the way to glory is through the cross. They don't get that. That the redemption of sinners is extremely costly. He doesn't get that yet. And lastly, I really think that, that Peter uses the sword because he just saw almost a thousand men knocked down backwards to the ground by the mere mention of I am. He just saw the power of Jesus by saying, I am. Boom. And he saw the power of Jesus in countless miracles. And he may have thought, hey, if I start this fight, Jesus will surely just zap these guys. He'll just do it again. But Jesus doesn't zap them again. Instead, he says to Peter, put the sword away. Right? And it seems like he says to the captors in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, permit even this. And I believe what he is saying to those who have just taken him is, 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 give me a moment and I will write this wrong. Give me a moment and I will write this wrong. And then we read in the same verse that he touched his ear and healed him. Right? And this is Jesus' last miracle. It was not asked for. It was done for somebody who was an enemy to Jesus. One who came to arrest him. One who came to see him be put to death. He was the high priest's servant. And Matthew tells us that Malchus's ear was cut off. And that means it's either on the floor, draped on his shoulder, or hanging by threads or something. All right? But it's cut off. And the blood must be gushing out. And the pain is probably intense and immense. And Jesus reaches out to him, and he has to, if it's his right ear, he's got to come with his left hand, and probably looks him in the eyes, and touches where the ear was. And the bleeding stops immediately. And the pain immediately subsides. And his ear is restored as whole. And Malchus knew it. And Peter knew it. And Judas knew it. And many in the multitude who were in that area, they knew it. So that in just the span of a few minutes, the multitudes and Judas witnessed two mind-blowing evidences of the power and the deity of Jesus Christ. That he was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God. Right? They were just driven to the ground by his presence. And now they see this healing, this healing and restoration of Malchus's ear. As Phil Sessa pointed out to me about a month ago, he said God had given these these two last-minute miracles uh, as a, as a last-minute opportunity, so to speak, to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. But their hearts are still hard, very hard. Uh, and they're bent on fulfilling uh, the, their evil and their desire of wickedness. Well, the next question is, why does Jesus heal Malchus? obvious answer is that he loves them. Right? He may be Jesus' enemy, but Jesus loves his enemies. He has often had compassion on people and healed people who didn't believe in him. You understand that, that many people he heals in the Gospels, they don't believe in him. 
Some do, but some don't. Right? In Luke 17, he heals the ten lepers. Right? How many come back to praise God and thank Him? But one. Nine of them just go their merry way. They're not thankful. Right? But another reason, and maybe the bigger one maybe, uh, is why he heals Malchus's ears, because Peter's action could have caused an immediate arrest and even slaughter of, of the apostles by the Roman cohort. You see, if the Romans saw this chopping off the ear and now we're in battle, well, they would have, they would have battled. And they're all armed. And they're, they're seasoned soldiers. And it, it would have been lights out for the apostles. So then by immediately healing Malchus's ear, Jesus spares the life of his apostles. I'd like to, for a moment, like just consider this guy Malchus uh, and how he must have felt. Again, he knew his ear was cut off. Uh, he knew that Jesus miraculously somehow healed it. He had to look into his eyes when Jesus healed him because it was his right ear and Jesus went with his left hand to heal it. He didn't, he didn't do this. He went like this, right? He had to see him. He had to look into his eyes, right? He felt Jesus' touch. He saw, he saw the... the, the the, the Prince of Glory. He saw the Lord of Love. He looked at him, right? While he's, while he's, he's touching him. Uh, and, and he saw perfect love. And Jesus reached out and healed him while he was bleeding and in pain. And, and he knew, he knew that Jesus knew that he was his enemy. He knew that, right? Yet Jesus still healed him. Uh, and, and I'm sure that when Jesus touched him, I'm sure it was a gentle and a compassionate touch. And I wonder what he must have thought, Malchus. When they go back and the high priest heard that Jesus healed his ear. Oh, guess what? Guess what, Caiaphas? One of Jesus' guys, poof, slapped off Malchus's ear. But look, he's whole. I'm sure the high priest announced and demonized Jesus. But we don't know. We don't know. But this is how Jesus treats his enemies, right, in this life. Right? And this is how he treats you and I. And if he has saved you, it's how he's treated you. And if you're not saved this day, he's had great compassion and mercy and patience with you. The fact that you're still here and you're still here in the gospel. He is patient and kind and benevolent to his people. And he is very patient with the unsaved. Even though they mock him and oftentimes live full throttle against him. Well, he heals Malchus and then turns to Peter and says to Peter, put your sword in its place. And he gives them three reasons why you should do this. Now, before I look at those three reasons, let me say that some use this verse to, to promote Christian pacifism, where they say that the Christian can never take up arms, can never fight in war, not have a police, police in society, can't defend themselves, none of that kind of stuff. But Jesus isn't saying that, and nor do the Scriptures say that. In Romans 13, Paul says that God puts rulers and those in authority and power Therefore, we should be subject to them. And in verse 4 we read, For he is God, this is the person in authority, that he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So then government has the right to use the sword against evildoers and against those who oppress people to protect life and liberty and freedom. And I would add that individuals have the right to defend themselves against evildoers. Right? So Jesus is not talking about never using the sword, but he's saying there is a proper place for it. Right? But he's saying we don't use it, it is not proper, for revenge or going against the law. 
Right? Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one renders evil to evil to anyone. And not only don't use the sword illegally, eventually, but more importantly, don't use it to advance my kingdom. Or don't use it against the enemies of my kingdom. Well, the first reason he's to put away the sword is because he says, all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. That's a proverbial saying. It's not absolute in every single circumstance. It's a proverbial saying. And it means if you use the sword vindictively or illegally, you will suffer the consequences of that. And that usually means you will perish by the sword as well. And what Jesus is alluding to is, is Genesis 9.5, which says if you take someone's life, you're going to lose your own life. Right? If you unlawfully shed someone else's blood, your blood will be shed as well. And, and, and of course, this is called the death penalty, which says life for life. Because the Lord puts a high premium on all human life. Because all men are image bearers of God. And only those in authority can put men to death because of lawlessness. Now the second reason that Peter should put away the sword is because Jesus doesn't need human help. If he wanted to defend himself, he could clearly do that. He says in verse 53, Do you not think, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide you with more than 12 legions of angels. Do you not think? He is saying, in essence, Peter, you call me the Christ. You say, I am the Son of the living God. You say, I have the words of eternal life. You have seen me calm storms. You have seen me cast out thousands of demons. Right? You saw me transfigured, speaking with Moses and Elijah. Do you not think that I can defend myself? Do you not yet understand what it means that I am the Son of God? Because if I wanted to, all I'd have to do is pray to my Father and He would immediately send me more than 12 legions of angels. And let me tell you, this is a massive amount of angels. Because a Roman legion was 6,000. So 12 legions of angels would be 72,000 angels. And Jesus says that the Father would send Him more than 12 legions of angels. And angels we know from Psalm 103 are exceedingly powerful. And just one angel in Scripture has immense power and can do great devastation. Just one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were camped out against Judah. Just one angel destroyed all the firstborn of men and animals in Egypt who did not have the blood of the Lamb around their doorposts. Just one angel killed 70,000 Israelites because of David's sin of counting the people. So one angel is very powerful. One angel is very powerful. And Jesus says, I can have more than 72,000 here just like that. It would be like, it would be like the New York City police force going to arrest my 92-year-old uncle in an assisted living. It would be like, I don't know how many cops the police force has, let's say 40,000 police people. It would be like 40,000 police people who go to arrest my, my 92-year-old uncle who can hardly walk. That would be like super-duper overkill, right? It would be like that, right? It, it, it would just be crazy. Or in terms of power, 72,000 angels would be more powerful than 10 trillion nuclear warheads or whatever we own nowadays. The point is that, that this small army that is arresting him can be reduced to dust in a split second if Jesus desired to do that. He doesn't need swords. 
He doesn't need an arsenal of angels at his fingertips because he could have them at his fingertips if he wanted them. And the Father did send him one angel while he was praying in the garden to comfort him. But if he prays to the Father, he says he'll send them 72,000 more. And please notice that the way Jesus receives things from the Father is through prayer. Through prayer. And the scriptures are clear that God wants us to ask Him for what we need. He wants us to bring it before Him. James tells us the reason we don't have is because we don't ask. Because we trust in ourselves or we ask amiss. And sometimes we shortchange Jesus. Right? We don't think He can or He will help us. It's as if we say, or He's saying, do you not think, do you not think that I can get you out of this dilemma? Do you not think that, that I could heal your illness? Do you not think that I could give you the resources you need to pay the rent? Do you not think that I could save your, your unsaved spouse? Do you not think, it may not be my will to do it, but do you not think that I can do that? Of course he could do that. So he wants us to pray. He wants us to pray because through prayer we receive the grace and the power we need to live for him. And this is something Peter needed to learn, and he did. Spurgeon said this about Peter needing to learn that. He said it would have been better, far better, if Peter's hands had been clasped in prayer instead of on a sword. Well, Jesus does not request the arsenal of angels because he says to Peter in John 18, 11, Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? Shall I not drink this cup, Peter? And this is the cup which has caused his soul to shake as he prayed in the garden when he considered the punishment for man's sins that he must bear. And the cup that only he could drink. Uh, the cup that he had to drink to save his people from their sins. Uh, and it, listen, it is because Jesus drank the cup that sinners can be forgiven and can be born again into his kingdom. And no one, no one comes into his kingdom by the sword. No one does. No one can be threatened or punished or manipulated by the sword to enter his kingdom. Right? And his kingdom can never be defended by the sword. And the greatest disservice to Jesus and his gospel are holy wars because they are absolutely unholy somehow trying to force people to convert to Christianity under the threat of death. The Crusades, that's what it was. Or Charles the Great, what he did to the Saxons in the ninth century, forcing people to become Christians or die. Listen, this is how Islam operates. This is how Islam operates. But this is not biblical Christianity at all. When asked, when asked if, if he was a king by Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, yes, yes, I am a king. And then he talked about his kingdom in John 18. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. So it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. And, and men and his men enter his kingdom through the changing of their hearts, through the regenerating of them, through the Holy Spirit, to spiritual life. And it is facilitated or brought about by the preaching of the gospel. So we don't use worldly weapons to reach the lost. As was read today in 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 
They're not worldly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And the strongholds that we pull down are the lies of Satan and the false promises of sin and the wicked agenda and philosophies of the world we live in, which men are naturally given to and buy into as we all did before we were saved. But our weapons are not swords, they're not guns, they're not threats, they're not politics, they're not laws, they're not the police. It's the Word of God. It's prayer. It's holy living. Suffering for Christ's sake. Ephesians 6.17 says, We wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that His Word is living and more powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and it is His Word, when attended by the Holy Spirit, that slices and dices men's consciences and convicts them of their sin against God and convicts them of their inability to save themselves. Paul said in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So it is the Word of God that turns wolves into sheep and mockers into worshippers and haters of God into lovers and worshippers of God and sinners into saints. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we preach the gospel in season and out of season. This is why the gospel goes out into all the world. This is why Grace Baptist Church puts corporate evangelistic opportunities on the calendar. Yes, we should all be personally sharing with people we meet, co-workers, neighbors, family. But corporately, we should do it as well. Listen, tomorrow night, we have a corporate opportunity to preach the gospel. Saturday afternoon, we have a corporate opportunity to preach the gospel. And besides the Word of God, the other weapons in our, our spiritual arsenal, our prayer, and the love of God that's coming out of us and suffering for Christ's sake. These are the weapons that win men's hearts to the claim of glory. They are weapons that grow the church. They slay pride. They rescue men from the kingdom of darkness. So instead of taking up a physical sword, we're called to take up our crosses. And if need be, to die for Christ. One commentator said this. He said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the, of the church, not the blood of heretics. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, not the seed of heretics. So then Christians triumph by submission, not by resistance. It is the meek that inherit the earth not the forceful. We can't make people desire righteousness. We can't make people see the beauty of Christ. We can't make them see it. Or see the depth of their own sin. We can't do it. You see, we, we can't regenerate anybody. Uh, we, we couldn't do it for ourselves and, and we can't do it for others. But God was merciful to us. And He, he was pleased to shine the light of, of Christ in our lives and in our hearts and, and shine them on our rock-hard hearts. And He melted them when He shined the beauty and glory of Jesus on He melted those rock hearts. And He put the life of His Son in us. So that, so that, what, so that, that we do what God has commanded and we preach the gospel and we walk worthy of the gospel that we preach and believe in. And, and we beseech Him to draw souls to Himself through our labor. And when He does, when He does, men will come to Christ willingly. They don't come, nobody comes to Christ kicking and screaming. Nobody's going to be dragged into heaven. Oh, man, i got to believe in this. Nobody does. They will surrender to Him. And they will lay down their, their, their arms and their, and, their, and their weapons and their worldly treasures and their idols and their, 
and, and they will lovingly embrace Jesus. Nobody is hoodwinked into the kingdom. Nobody is, is forced into the kingdom. And once they're in the kingdom, they'll preach the gospel and they'll walk worthy of the gospel because they'll see the beauty of Christ and of God and of His gospel. So put away the sword, Peter. Put it away. Because if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Because if I wanted to defend myself, Peter, I have an arsenal in heaven. Just i got to ask for it. And it's mine. All mine. And thirdly, put it away, Peter. Because this is all the plan of God. In verse 54, How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In other words, this is the divine will and purpose of God. That the Messiah must be betrayed and despised and rejected and suffer and die. And Peter failed to recognize the sovereign plan of God that was unfolding right before his eyes and was penned by the prophets centuries before. And what was prophesied was that Christ, the Christ, should be led as a lamb to the slaughter. That the shepherd would be and should be struck and that the sheep would scatter. So that the fathers, his determined counsel from before time began, this must now be accomplished. Christ must go to the cross. The the, the, he must crush the head of the serpent, yet his, his heel must be bruised in order to make satisfactory payment of all the sins of all his people. And the whole Old Testament prefigures this great work in types and shadows and in direct prophecies. And Jesus is keenly aware of all of this. He's keenly aware of it. And he is determined to see them fulfilled because, because he knows they are the will of God. So he's going to go to the cross, not because the Father can't stop it, and not because he can't stop it. And not because, because it's, 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 he's a victim. But because it's his will to fulfill the Father's will. Peter doesn't grasp this yet. Nor do any of the apostles at this time. They all saw Jesus as a victim. But he was no victim at all. No victim at all. He let everything happen. Even his crucifixion. Because he wanted them to happen. And if someone doesn't understand that then they don't really understand the cross. If someone doesn't understand it, they don't understand the cross. I remember many years ago, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago now, when the movie The, the Passion came out, and I didn't really want to see it, because I don't like blood and guts. I get really queasy, and I don't, I don't do well. And I knew it was blood and guts. Um, but one of the elders in North Shore at the time said to me, we ought to go and see it, because we'll be able to witness a lot of Catholics. We ought to know what the movie's about, so if we can, we can converse on it. I said, all right, I'll go. And, and, and so I sat through it, and it, it probably was the probably the best depiction of what a scourging was like, more so than anything else I've ever read or seen. But, but it, missed, it missed the spiritual aspect of it. And so people are there in, in, the, in the movie theater. They're, they're screaming. They're wailing. They're crying. They're angry. And they're angry at, at the Jews for giving them up. They're angry at the Romans for scourging him and beating him and having his flesh fly all over the place. And and, and I'm listening to them. But here's the thing. They, they think Jesus is a victim. That he got caught. That somehow, you know, the, the bad Jewish leaders, you know, did him in. And, and Pilate was a weakling and, and didn't let him go. He wanted it to happen. He was prepared for it to happen. His whole life was geared for it to happen. He was born for this reason. Only person ever born to die. And Peter doesn't get this yet. 
And for the second time, unknowingly, he tries to short-circuit the cross. Back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples for the very first time that he would be murdered and then he would resurrect again three days later. And here was Peter's response. This, by the way, happens right after Peter claims that Jesus is the Christ. And, and, and Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father revealed this to you. All right? And, you know, Peter's feeling good now. And then Jesus says, well, I've got to go to the cross and I'm going to be crucified and die and rise again. And Peter says this, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Well, what was Jesus' response? Just called them the little rock. His response was this. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And what Peter did in Acts 16, Matthew 16, he's now doing by drawing the sword. He's getting in the way of the cross. He's trying to keep Jesus from suffering for the sins of his people, who Peter happens to be one of. And so we see his encounter with Peter. And now let's look at his encounter with the multitude in verses 55 and 56. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Well, the multitudes, they now have Jesus. He has willingly given himself over to them. Uh, but before he lets them take them away, he asks a question. Uh, and the reason he asks the question is to expose their sin to them and their cowardice and to make them think about what they're doing, which he has already done to Judas. And so he asks them, am I a robber? Am I a robber that you come to arrest me with swords and clubs under the cloak of darkness? Because a robber is someone who is seeking to avoid their captor. I mean, people don't rob banks and stores and houses and then hang out and wait there for people to arrest them, right? They're not waiting around for the captors to come and get them. They're not out in the open, right? They hide. They hide. They go into hiding. Listen, every time I see a helicopter flying over some houses like 50 feet above and they've got the light on at nighttime, I know what's going on. They're looking for somebody who's hiding, who's done something bad. That's what they're doing. But Jesus isn't hiding. He was extremely accessible to the Jewish leaders. That whole week, every morning, he taught in the temple. Until all day long, actually. Right? So they knew where he was, and they could have apprehended him at any time. He was there. Right? He wasn't incognito. He didn't have bodyguards following him around, as I am told some pastors do, by the way. Right? He didn't have any bodyguards. And, and, but the Jewish leaders, they feared arresting him at the feast because they knew the people took him to be a prophet. And besides that, he is, indeed, the main attraction for many at the feast since many heard about his miracles and particularly the raising of Lazarus from the dead just a few months before. So the Jewish leaders, they don't want to arrest him then. They want to wait till after the feast. Under, they want to go under the radar. But remember, as we talked in the beginning of Matthew 26, there was God's will that they would do it at the feast. There would be a public execution. Wanted everyone to see it. Well, Luke 20 to 53 adds that Jesus says to them, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And your hour means... 
your hour to seemingly triumph over me. Your hour to fulfill the evil in your hearts, the rebellion that is brewing in you. Your hour to plot a vain thing and to carry it out. Your hour to try to break the Lord's bonds in pieces and cast them away from you. As one commentator said, but here's the thing. It's only an hour. It's only an hour. Or literally, it'll only be for a few days. And then Jesus will burst forth out of the tomb. And he will ascend into heaven and sit at the Father's right hand where he will rule with all authority and power. So it looks like an hour of triumph will one day be their endless, eternal misery. They will see him coming on the clouds of glory. And they will have to stand before the one that they crucified and wanted crucified. And he will take holy vengeance on them because they did not know God and they did not obey his gospel. And it will forever gnaw at them while in the torments of hell that they had the Son of God in their midst. In their midst. And they heard his words and they saw his miracles, but they said, we will not have you to be our Messiah. We will not have you to rule over us. We will not allow you to tell us what to do. So this is your hour. And it is also the power of darkness. And that means power granted to them by the prince of darkness to carry out this great and wicked evil. And that's what darkness alludes to, is evil or spiritual blindness and a love for and an enslavement to sin, which every believer, every believer has been called out of. You understand, you are either in darkness or in the light. You are either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of Satan. You are either of your father God or of your father the devil. There's no in-between. Nobody's riding the fence here. You're either saved or unsaved. No matter how wicked you are, and everybody's wicked, you're either in one camp or the other. And the only way anyone gets into the kingdom of God is through Christ. Through Christ. It's the only way. Repenting and believing and following and surrendering and submitting to Him. So the reality here is that, that although Jesus is the only one roped up or chained up, He's the only one that's not bound. He's the only one that's not bound. The multitudes, they're bound. They're bound by their sin. They're bound by the will of the devil. And they're bound to an eternal doom. Well, as I said, Jesus asked them a question to expose their sin and their guilt to them. And I believe, even at this late hour, He's aiming at their souls to bring about repentance and faith. Listen, He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over sinners. In His humanity, He wept over the hardness of men's hearts. You see, the door of mercy and grace is still open to them. It's still open. And they can think about those two miracles they just witnessed just minutes before and consider that only the Messiah can do those things. Who else could say, I am, and a thousand people go back and dead on the ground? Who else can just touch someone and an ear is restored in full? Who could do that? And, and then consider, consider them, consider for them the charges that, that are trumped up against Jesus. They're not legitimate. He, yes, he was in the temple every day. Now that you think about it, he was there for hours every day te- teaching them. And he was even conversing or debating with the, with the scribes and Pharisees. So he was there every day. And you know, he's never done anything evil but only good for people. Because everything we've ever heard about this guy is good. He's helped people. He's cared about people. And so hopefully they would see their rebellion and see themselves as the ones who were bound in chains of their sin. And then cry out for forgiveness and new life from the only one who could give it to them. 
and he would give it to them. You understand, anyone who cries out and sincerely cries out, they'll find it. You see, it's never too late to repent of your sin. It's never too late to seek Jesus. Only the fool or the proud or the ignorant thinks that's the case. Only the fool or the proud or the ignorant thinks that's the case. Maybe some of you today. You're not worried. You might live another 50, 60 years. Maybe. You only live another 50 or 60 minutes. Who knows? Who knows? But if you're unsaved this day, if you're unsaved this day, then you need to know you're bound by your sin. You're enslaved to your sin. And on the last day, you'll have to answer for that. And you'll stand before the very judge, who is Christ. And he will separate you from his believers. Or put you with the goats. And he will cast you into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But you see, today is still a day of salvation. But you must recognize your woeful, pitiful condition before God. But most people think they're not that bad. They think they're not that bad. But from God's perspective, it's horrendous. It's bad. There's hope for the one who comes to Christ. There's great hope. Well, 56, verse 56 ends, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And Jesus told them back in verse 31, this is what you guys are going to do. This is what you're going to do. And so much for the, we'll never leave you. We'd never be ashamed of you. We'd never deny you. Hey, we would, we would all even die for you, is what they say. Right? And yet, they all panicked when they saw him bound and taken away. And they feared that this would happen to them. And so they bolt. They fled for their lives. Even though, even though Jesus was protecting them. Even though the Father was protecting them. Out of fear, they fled. They left the one they loved. They abandoned the one they called Lord. But praise be to God, Jesus did not abandon them. He did not abandon them. Because if Jesus would have done that, that would mean that he would have skirted the cross. And he would have, he would have abandoned the cross. But he didn't. Right? He loved them even though they were weak and fearful and boastful and ignorant and worldly minded. They were his disciples. They were his sheep. And he came to die for his sheep to make them perfect before God. And brothers and sisters, that's the way he loves us. Like he loved his apostles. Because we're his sheep too. We're his sheep too. So even though we fall into sin, sadly, and even though we are so foolish at times, and fearful, and we wallow in our faults at times, the amazing thing is that the mess that you and I are, right, does not keep him, and did not keep him from going to the cross for us. Think about it. Think about what you were like before you were saved. And even now after saved. Think about like the mess that you were. The sin factory that you were. And yet, He loved you so much that He came into this world for you and marched up to the cross for you. And i got to tell you, if you really consider just the, the, the tremendous offense that you and I are to God before we're saved, who would do that? Who would die for your enemies as Derek said before from Romans 5, who would die for their enemies? Well, Jesus did. Because he loved his enemies. 
Because there's people. There is Jesus. And that's amazing love, isn't it? And that's amazing grace. Well, I'd like to close by gazing once again at our Lord as He marches towards the cross. And He's steadfast and focused on His mission. And, and He's in no way shaken by the events. Listen, I shake easy. Right? Someone doesn't show up, I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? You know? One of the sound guys is missing, you know, I get nervous. But Jesus doesn't shake at all. Right? He's absolutely steadfast and focused on the mission. He's prayed three times. His soul was so, so, so rocketed because of the, the cup he had to drink and his humanity. He knew what was coming. And God had given him grace and comfort that he could now, with complete peace, march to the cross and fulfill the will of the Father. All right? And so he's absolutely in control. He's not shaken by events. Peter pulling out the sword, the whole sword incident, doesn't throw him for a loop. Think about it. All right, take me. And all of a sudden, boom, the sword comes out and now there's this chaos going on. Doesn't shake him. Instead, he uses it to teach and to protect and to demonstrate that he is indeed the Son of God. He's not mad. He's not disappointed at the apostles' inability to understand. He's not angry at the lynch mob that's come to illegally arrest him. Right? But instead, again, he reaches out to them. He heals one of them and exposes their sins to them in hope that they would see their sin and come to Him. All the while, He is anchored on fulfilling the Scriptures, and nothing can keep Him from doing that. You see, He's called to go to the cross, and that is a call of great suffering. And He willfully embraces that, because that's His Father's will. And that, and, and that will free His people from the great suffering of God's eternal wrath. Somebody is suffering for my sin. And somebody is suffering for your sin. Somebody's paying for it. The problem is you and I can't really pay for it. It just takes forever to pay for it, which means eternity. But Jesus came to do that. He came to take upon himself the very wrath of God and his anger and fury at sin so that we can know nothing but love and peace and grace and mercy and life. So betrayal and abandonment and trumped up charges and a posse of armed men, they don't cause them to flinch. They don't cause him to call down those 12 legions of angels. Instead, he's looking forward to the reward. And guess what, brothers and sisters? You and I are part of the reward. We are part of the reward. The world doesn't think anything of us. We are riffraff to the world. We're insignificant to the world. But guess what? We mean everything to Jesus. We mean everything to him. You may not mean anything to the world. Think about how the world thinks of us. We're, we're, we're wasted space. We're trouble. We're like a thorn in the side. We're a nuisance if we share our faith, right? And yet, we mean everything to Jesus. He thinks so much of you and so much of me that He allowed crime after crime and sin after sin to be committed against Him because He loves us. Because we mean much to Him. He allowed the wages of our sins to be crushed onto Him and charged against Him so that we could be made His own. Why? Because He loves us. He loves us. So when you start to struggle, when you fall into self-pity, it seems like the days are really dark. Gaze upon Him who allowed Himself to be taken by sinful men, by lawless men, so that He could free you from the bondage of sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for saving sinners. Lord, thank you for saving many in this room. 
What grace, what mercy, what love. Father, I pray for those of us who have been saved, Lord, that it would mean everything to us and our lives would show it. We wouldn't be apathetic or ho-hum, but Lord, that we would live with gusto and love and passion for Christ. That He would be everything to us. And Lord, for those this day that don't know Him or think they know Him and don't know Him, Lord, would you press their souls hard? Lord, would you cause them even to be going to great agony that they're separated from you? And there's a payment to be, that must be made. But oh, Lord, show them the cross. Show them the beauty and glory of Jesus. Show them their only hope. And Lord, drive them to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.